Welcome everyone, this is Carlos from Seedcamp. Really excited today sitting in Index's offices with the founder of Index Ventures, Neil Reimer. Um, we want to start the way we usually start, which is getting to know the person behind the name. And uh, Neil, you started off in, um, in, in Geneva um, and you were studying there. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about kind of what you went through when you first graduated and realizing, okay, I need to, I need to start working, what am I going to do? Sure. Um, well, actually, uh, my background is I was born in Canada, and uh, my family moved to Geneva when I was seven years old. So <clears throat> I grew up in Geneva. I went to school there, um, uh, but when I went to college, I went to the United States. I went to uh, California and uh, spent four years there, um, actually started off as a pre-med, thought I would, would be a doctor. and. Uh, about halfway through that, even though I love medicine and I love the the, the uh, academic side of, of science and uh, applying it to health, I felt like um, I was too curious about too many other things, and I was concerned that I'd be one of these doctors who's always talking about you know companies and stock portfolios, and uh, those are not the kind of doctors I like to be treated by. So I thought maybe I shouldn't be one of those doctors. And fair enough. <clears throat> um, but I wanted to find something I could do that would keep me engaged with science and technology and innovation. And uh, actually, um, one of my brother's uh, roommates, and he and I went to were at the same university, um, was moonlighting for a firm called NEA, uh, reading business plans and summarizing them. Uh, and I uh, was interested in that, um, thought it was a cool thing to do, we would actually talk about some of these plans. Uh, the real reason I was doing this with him bec was because he uh, he had this word processor called a North Star, which at the time was a big deal, because um, otherwise you'd have to type out your papers. And I could use his, his uh, word processor if I helped him with this stuff. Um, anyway, so, but basically exiting uh, Stanford, I, I already knew that I wanted to work in technology. I wanted to work in venture capital because um, I'd been exposed to it through this friend of mine. And I went to work for a firm in San Francisco called Montgomery Securities, which was a, a small investment bank that was, again, focused completely on technology. And uh, the first couple years, um, I was the first kid they'd ever hired straight out of college. All of the other people there had been hired from other investment banks. Um, and somehow I got to know the, the founder of this firm, Tom Weisel, and he was um, you know, kind of took a took a liking to me and and mentored me. And uh, I spent two years doing investment banking deals. You know, taking companies public, working on those deals, learning how that works. And then the second half of the four years I spent there, I was investing in private companies because they had a small venture fund. And that's really where I was exposed to <clears throat> to the business. And um, so, if you, if you had to sort of summarize like the top three skills that that those four years gave you to help analyze companies, uh, what, what would you say those were? Like at the time, if you had turned VC at that moment, what were the three things that you normally looked at when you got anything? You know, um, what's interesting is that in those days, and this really makes me sound old, which, uh, which I am, is that, you know, plans were, were typed out, maybe printed out on a, on a rudimentary printer, but it was text, there were a few graphs, there were some tables. That's all you'd get. You wouldn't get files, you wouldn't get uh, uh, you know, data rooms. Um, 
and all kinds of analytics. So you, you had that to go by, and then you could make calls. Um, you also didn't have to make a decision in a matter of weeks. You know, you had a little bit more time. Um, but uh, that still, I think, uh, had an impact on, on the way we used to look at things, and I think probably um, still does in my case. You know, you, you really want to understand early on how big the market is, uh, how big the market opportunity is, and I'm still kind of amazed at how often entrepreneurs themselves are just not, um, you know, intellectually honest about how big their real market opportunity is. You know, on 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 paper at face value, a lot of them are are are, are sometimes, um, some of them I should say are, um, you know, chasing after opportunities in in constrained markets, markets that are even more constrained than they they really admit to themselves. And and how much. Do so that's you, one of them. Yeah, that's one of them. And just to, to deep dive on that one before we go to the next two. On markets, uh, sometimes founders will say, look, I, I know that the market is small right now, but I can expand this. So, you know, like the typical buzzword is blue ocean, right? It's I can change the way this market operates with my product, and therefore it will be a lot bigger because of me. What do you usually think about that that kind of uh, thinking at the early stages? Uh, it, it depends. I mean, if you are enabling something that didn't exist before, um, and by doing that, accessing a bigger market or a big market that just hadn't been measured, that's one thing. You still should be able to back into some sort of measure of what that market size is because you're fulfilling some sort of a need. And whether or not there's a business doing that um, or not, there's some way of measuring how big that need is. So you could, you could argue that. Uh, when people talk about um, creating demand or changing behavior, I get a little nervous because that's a very hard thing to do. Yeah. Okay. So the other two? Um, the other two are 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 probably uh, also kind of trite, um, but you know they're they're still important to me. One is, you know, also because there was not that much data available. Um, it, we really would focus a lot on the people, on references, on character, um, and uh, you know, over the years, I think I've honed that um, by by meeting lots of people and um, seeing how movies play out, um, and learning to try kind of trust your instincts about people, um, about their drive, and really trying to understand, um, you know who they are as people, um, what's, what's their real motivation for doing this thing, uh, you know, what, what constitutes a success for them, um, what are their fears, what are their, how open are they about, uh, about their fears and about their um, aspirations. So I think uh, as a result of having grown up in the industry at that time, I'm probably uh, very focused on, on kind of measuring people and, and also getting a sense for how much I want to work with this person, you know, how much I want to, I'm willing to get into trouble with them because things never go as planned. Yeah. Um, and then the last one is, is, uh, something that, um, we would look at and that I, that I actually, um, have forced myself to, to try to bring up in every real conversation we have about an opportunity, which is, um, you know, I think around the table you always have lots of smart people uh, who have 
experience and who are somewhat cynical about lots of things that can go wrong. And so you could pretty much show a room full of smart people, you know, the greatest business plan ever, and, and people would come up with 40 ways this is going to fail miserably. Um, but you really do also have to remind yourself of what could happen if this goes right. What if yeah. the stars align, they get a little bit of luck, and, uh, you know, and, uh, and this thing really plays out to its, close to its full potential. And if you do that, um, it's much easier to separate the great opportunities from the, the average, because some of them are orders of magnitude bigger if that thing happens, if yeah. those things happen than others. So we, you know, that's probably the third thing is trying to remember always to also ask yourself what happens if this goes right. Yeah, no, fair enough. Um, so after that period of time in investment banking, you moved um, back to school. And then when you left uh, is when you moved back to Europe, correct? And one of the things that you did right after that was, from what I understand, you started helping broker uh, deals here in Europe in terms of tech startups. Is, is that maybe yeah, way of well, presenting it? Yeah, well, I mean, uh, so, yeah, so after Montgomery, I went to business school um, just to really give myself a chance to, to think uh, hard about, you know, whether or not this is a career I wanted and really to try to poke holes in my in my idea. And the thinking was always, you know, I, I wasn't able to shake the idea of, of starting a venture firm. The question was whether I'd go back to California, the Bay Area, where I had spent the previous, you know, eight years, or uh, go back to Europe, where I grew up. And being young and stupid, I thought I'd take on the bigger challenge, which was going to Europe and trying to be part of creating an industry in Europe, you know, trying to translate the, um, you know, the philosophy and, and methodology of, of venture capital, you know, venture capitalists partnering with entrepreneurs to, to, to build companies that will transform industries, trying to translate, uh, translate that into a new environment. So I came back to Geneva where, where I grew up. Um, that was really the only reason we started in Geneva. That and the fact that, um, you know, at the time there, 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 people were always asking, so where is, where is Silicon Valley going to be in Europe? And the view that we took was that there isn't going to be one, that Silicon Valley is a one-off thing. Um, there's no Silicon Valley outside of Silicon Valley, and that's okay. That doesn't mean there won't be great companies emerging in lots of great places. So we just said, we'll position us, we'll build our firm in a place where we can attract partners and where, uh, from where you can cover Europe. Because yeah. our our thesis was that if we were going to be able to compete with the best firms in the world, we'd have to be able to hunt in a big territory because there was no concentration. And Geneva has good infrastructure. It has a good airport, good connections, um, and it's a decent place for people to, to raise a family. So that's why we started there. Um, but we didn't have a track record, and we didn't have a fund. Um, and, uh, you know, even though uh, one of my... Uh, co-founders was, was one of my brothers. We didn't have family money either. You know, we were building this from scratch. And so the way we did that was for the first several years, we um, helped companies. We'd identify companies that we thought were interesting, and we'd help them put their rounds together. And we'd get paid partly in cash to keep the lights on and partly in options. Um, and, uh, and we'd actually go out and raise money from people on a deal-by-deal -deal basis. So it's sort of like doing a mini fund 
every time you made an investment. Right. And we did that for about four years. Um, we always focused on institutional investors because we knew that uh, one day we'd go back to them and try to raise a fund. What was it called then, by the way? Uh, actually, the firm was called Index Securities, okay. um, which was this the name of a firm that my father had started um, when I was a kid, which was a bond trading firm. Um, but he had sold it, um, but kept the name. And we used it just because it was a registered entity yeah. and it... It was, um, you know, kind of well regarded in Switzerland, and that, and in Switzerland, you know, having a name that has been around and has not been associated with anything bad is is a is a good thing. So we used that. And this was the early '90s, right? Um, yeah. What was that like? I mean, if, I think a lot of founders may not necessarily appreciate what what European venture and, and fundraising must have been like in those days. You, you mentioned that you wanted to start uh, in, in Europe as opposed to in the Valley. What, what were the firms like? What were the uh, investor risk profiles? Um, were there funds as we understand them today? Um, yeah, it's it's funny because it, when you say that, it makes it sound like I'm talking to you about some long begone period, you know, pre-war. Yeah. Um, and it's not that long ago, but 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 you're right in the sense that it was a very very different landscape. You yeah. know, the firms. Um, were people like Apex, yeah. you know, used to do venture capital, believe it or not, um, Advent, uh, 3i, uh, Amadeus, um, Sophie Nova, you know, I'm probably missing one or two. Um, yeah. Most of the firms, in fact, almost all of them were regional. Yeah. Um, and very few of them were focused on the early stage technology driven opportunity. Apex and Advent quickly moved into much bigger funds, much bigger deals, and more buyouts. Um, you know, some of the other firms have moved out of uh, venture completely. Um, you know, 3i had this kind of wacky idea of investing, kind of buying the index and investing in pretty much everything that showed up. Yeah. Um, and uh, um, so it was a very, very, very early days. Um, you know, you pretty much had to start every conversation with some sort of a secret handshake about whether or not you both knew what venture capital meant, you know, and if you were talking to investors, you had to start the conversation with a few slides um, explaining what venture capital was. Yeah. Um, and that actually persisted until, you know, when we raised our first fund in 1996, we were doing that. Um, so that, that uh, people forget, but it's not long ago that, that people really literally did not know what this meant. And what, what was that first fund like? I mean, that, you know, it's very exciting in many ways. It's a, it's a startup of its own, right? Um, yeah. What was that like? Um, our, our first fund was a uh, $17 million fund, and um, it, was, uh, it, it was a, uh, you know, it was really the first pool of capital that would allow us to invest uh, directly in companies and not have to go back to investors. Um, and, you know, we had, so our, our game plan had kind of played out. We had done these deal by deal things for a long time and we, we made money for people. And at some point they said, you know, why don't you guys take this pool of capital and invest it? And so we did that. Um, we also invested another $80 million of co-investment along with that fund. So so the total amount of that fund invested was about $100 million, um, but our economics were on 17. Uh, mm. and, uh, and then after that, um, you know, the next fund was a $180 million fund, so mm. substantially larger, because we'd proven to people we could 
we could put that kind of money to work. And wh what was the, the investment really that defined that, that period for you? Um, probably, there, there were a couple, um, probably the one that was most uh, uh, successful in that portfolio was a company called Virata. Virata. Which was uh, Cambridge. Chipmaker, right? Yeah, chipmaker. They, they, um, so they, they were basically the dominant player um, in ADSL chipsets. And so at the time, ADSL was one of many technologies that people thought would end up delivering a broadband to the home. And, you know, people thought it would be fiber or, or wireless means. And um, Verado was a, was a bet on, on that. And, you know, we're still using ADSL today. Yeah, and then and then shortly thereafter, you did you raise another fund? Um, what was the next one that you, you guys raised? Yeah, um, so the the following fund was a hundred and eighty million dollar fund, um, and uh, and then after that, um, uh, we raised. I mean, we're now we're now investing our our seventh venture fund. Um, the size kind of um, leveled out at yeah. between three hundred and fifty and. You know, a rep be 300 and 350 uh, million euros in a, in a venture fund. Yeah, and during that period, is roughly right right around the nuclear winter of the, the bubble burst of 1999 and thereabouts. What was that like? What was European venture like during that period? It was um, uh, probably similar to, to venture capital anywhere at that time in, in technology. You know, there was a, a period of time where um, it was very hard to find things that you wanted to do. Um, because, uh, you know, because so many, uh, businesses had been, had been decimated, um, and their kind of bodies strewn all, all around the landscape. Um, and there were lots of, uh, companies that were, um, that still had capital, but that didn't really have a business model. And so they were kind of always looking at things that would emerge mm. and uh, morphing, you know, instantly yeah. to sort of occupy that space. So that you had this weird uh, landscape where, you know, you were never, you never really knew how many competitors a business would have because mm. there were five companies that were loosely around it that could instantly turn on that business model and had the capital or had, you know, had some capital in their balance yeah. sheet and a team. Um, so it was, a, it was an odd time. At the same time, you know, um, we made some of our uh, some of our defining investments. You know, around that period. Yeah, there there is that rumor that that or myth that during that time is is not only the best time for obvious economic reasons, but partially because the founders that do make through that period are usually twice as 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 determined. Yeah, yeah, yeah it's true. I mean, and and it's the same thing that um, <clears throat> that um, I will bring up when people ask us. You know about the markets, or about you know how the how the how the markets are affecting what we do, or whether stock prices are too high or too low, whether there's a bubble or not. It it really doesn't matter that much because the entrepreneurs we're backing are taking a much longer view, five to fifteen years, and over that period you're going to have multiple cycles. Yeah. And if they're doing something important um, and uh, uh, and valuable, you know they're going to build value regardless of what the market does during that period, it, it'll fluctuate and it'll have short-term Im impact yeah. on how how you value what they're doing. Yeah. But, you know, over the long term, it won't have any impact. Yeah, fair enough. So w you mentioned um, that, that uh, you're on the seventh fund and that you've raised several funds uh, since that very first one.
but that it's stabilized in terms of the size. I think one of the things that might not be obvious to founders is how fund size affects investment strategy and how when they're reaching out to investors, they should look at what, what the fund is like, who the partner is that they're speaking to, but also the fund size and how that determines whether it's an appropriate investment for them. Maybe if you want to do a quick primer on, on, on that for, for the founders that are listening about knowing which kind of fund to reach out to. Sure. There's, um, you know, there, there's the basic consideration I'd say is um, what is a firm's track record in terms of the types of uh, types of deals that they've done. You know, what point they've typically intersected with companies. You know, somebody can say that they're a seed investor, but if ninety percent of their investments are Series B or Series C, you know, they're not really. Um, you know, walking the talk. So um, that that's something I'd look at. Fund size matters um, at least to us because we've we, as I mentioned earlier, you know, we saw lots of firms kind of um, balloon into these completely different animals that were much more oriented towards buyouts and you know putting a hundred million dollars to work in a single company and using leverage and um, and. We, we've always known that that's not us. That's not why we started our firm. That's not what gets us excited about. It's a perfectly good way to, uh, to, to uh, build a firm and, and, uh, and, a, and a great investment. Um, but it's not what we want to do. We want to, uh, we always want to be able to work with, you know, the, the, the small team of um, missionary entrepreneurs early on and help them uh, help them shape their their business and participate in that journey from the earliest days. That's what that's what we like. That's what we enjoy. Um, we want to have the firepower to be able to follow those investments through as far as as far as it makes sense for us to do that. And very often that's been all the way to the IPO. And you know, in, in many cases we we've, we've even participated in IPOs. Mm-hmm. But we haven't wanted the fund size to dictate our strategy. We've wanted it to be the other way around. And We've had lots of um, opportunities to raise larger funds, um, but we've deliberately stayed away from doing that because we didn't want to be sitting around the table when somebody would bring in a really interesting business, um, but they were only looking for $600,000, and people would just yawn because they couldn't figure out how that could have an impact on a $5 billion fund. Um, And that's a plausible scenario. It happens probably... In, in every day in, in some firms and then eventually people don't bring those deals in yeah. and that firm is no longer an early stage investor. So yeah. so we've deliberately um, capped the size of our funds and we hope to do that for for the foreseeable future. Yeah, and you mentioned early that you like to be part of that founder's journey very early on. One of the things that a lot of founders ask is what what is too early? Like what is traction? What is growth? What what it, what does what does um, the right number look like so that that you can be excited about something. That's a. Um, I'm glad you asked that question because I think sometimes um, entrepreneurs come away from a conversation and um, they uh, they have heard something like that. You know that somebody has said uh, we'd like to see a little bit more traction, or um, you know somebody might have said you're you're too early for us. Um, and they've taken that to mean, oh, I understand, you're not early stage investors. But actually, that's not what that means. Um, it may, in some cases, if they've knocked on the wrong door. But for instance, if somebody came away from a meeting with us on that, you know, with that kind of feedback, 
that just means that given what they're trying to do, the market that they're in, the product that they're building, that they need to get more proof points um, to validate that, you know, that what they're doing can be done. Um, that doesn't mean that we're not an early stage investor. That means that we think that there's more there that they can generate in terms of uh, validation um, for their own benefit, by the way, as well as for, for our benefit to get enough conviction to, to lead a, a, you know, a significant Series A, let's say. Mm. Um, and, our, and our preference will always be to do a two or three million dollar Series A um, and really um, devote the time and energy to it, then trickle in a few hundred thousand in seed. Um, just because that's dispersive for us, it doesn't really give the commitment to the entrepreneurs that they want. Um, we'll do that sometimes um, when we continue to have a, an active seed program. But, um, you know, the sweet spot is really uh, doing a Series A. Um, and, and just for those that are in the, in the audience that might not be familiar with that range, in, especially in Europe, um, in, in pounds or in euros, what, what would you define the current Series A looks like, at least for you guys? I, I, you know, it, it, there are no hard and fast rules, and I'd say um, things are getting larger because there's more angel money around and seed rounds are getting bigger, and that's all a good thing. Um, you know, uh, way back when, a seed round, you know, a Series A was a million dollars or a couple of million dollars. Today, um, I'd say five million is probably, um, uh, you know, the the median size. Yeah. Um, are you seeing some? things around that's about right but it's more of like when you when you were saying earlier that you invest early really your sweet spot is in that series a and then occasionally you'll you'll dip below that but um the seed program that you guys have what what's roughly for any founders out there who who want to approach you on that stage what would that ticket look like typically that could be anything from you know 250,000 pounds dollars euros pick your currency yeah um to uh a million, I'd say. Yeah. Um, and and those are scenarios where um, there are good reasons to lead us to uh, want to finance a an experiment of some sort, you know. Um, and there are compelling reasons why that should be done with outside money rather than uh, you know the entrepreneur's resources. Um, but just getting back to what you were asking me about early, you know, I, I think that um, the the key here is just um, for an entrepreneur to go as far as they can to validate, you know, a proposition yeah. and um, to validate at some point uh, the fact that they can scale that proposition. And in a seed or a series A, you're never going to be able to validate that this scales. You, yeah. You're not there yet. But you might be able to validate pretty, um, conf- you know, with, with a fair degree of confidence that... Yeah. This serves a real need, and then you can um, you can show numbers that indicate that it serves a need for a large number of people. Yeah. And then there's a hypothesis on how you would address that that number of people. And you know, Series A is to sort of explore that. Yeah. And you guys have been very successful with marketplaces. So what does that early success look like for a marketplace? Where sometimes there might be some traction on the supply side or on the demand side before you switch on the other half. And what, what point do you guys get interested? Do you, do you guys even get interested if there's latent demand on the supply side, but demand hasn't been turned on? And, and at which point do you feel like your, your best value add kicks in? 
Yeah, marketplaces have taught us a lot. I mean, one of the earliest marketplaces that um, we invested in was a company that that uh, uh, that I was involved with called Flutter, which became Betfair, which was the first betting marketplace. Um, and uh, you know, we learned an awful lot by investing in that business. Um, mainly that you know, liquidity begets liquidity, and if you if you have a compelling proposition for people to trade on your marketplace, um, and they bring their their volume to your marketplace, and it becomes liquid. Um, that will attract more players, and eventually, you know, if you've built the Nasdaq, there's really no reason to build another Nasdaq. You know, right. the Nasdaq is you'd rather be part of the biggest marketplace than you know, be a pioneer with it, with the newest marketplace. Yeah. Um, and so that's really what we're always looking for. You know, we're looking for indications that, um, that, that there's liquidity and that there's a, uh, a path to enhancing that liquidity. When, when, uh, you know, one example is when the guys at Funding Circle came to see us, the first time they came to see us, they had this idea, um, of building a, Really, a a, uh, uh, a kind of independent bond market for uh, an unregulated bond market for small businesses, and it was a very compelling idea. Um, but they hadn't they hadn't built it yet, and uh, and we you know what we said was we'd love to see we'd love to when you've built this we'd love to see what it looks like, and that's not just because we didn't believe it could be built, but we wanted to also see what their take on this thing would be. You know, what is their, what is their vision? What is their product sense? How will they um, uh, actually, you know, implement this idea? And a few months later, they came back and they showed us um, a pretty ugly website. Um, but it was, it was working. They were transacting. They were starting to do some trades. And um, you could actually see businesses coming to the, coming to the, the forum and, and applying for loans and um, individual investors at that time, they had no institutions on the platform um, coming and exploring these loans and, and, and buying all or parts of them. It was wiggling. And uh, we thought that was in incredibly compelling. And we thought if you could do this with this kind of a website, um, what could you do with something that was, you know, that was uh, state of the art and if they had a little bit of resources. So we, you know, at that point, that was enough for us. We saw they had a big vision we really liked the guys and the interaction among them as three co-founders. Um, they'd shown that, you know, from a regulatory standpoint, it could be done. In fact, they they did, they received some sort of um, no action letter from the from the uh, the uh, UK financial authorities that said that they wouldn't try to regulate them. Um, and that was, you know, that was enough for us. Um, the interesting thing about that market is, from a very early stage they realize that if they're able to put this together and deliver, you know, six, seven, eight percent yields after defaults to investors, um, which is still, by the way, a really, really good deal for small businesses that are either not getting loans at all from, from banks um, or, you know, they're taking months to get them. Um, the supply side would kind of take care of itself. You know, there's a wall of, of institutional money out there wanting those kinds of returns in a scalable way. Mm. So they early on realized that they could not entirely take that for granted, but that they should really focus on the other side of the marketplace, 
which was going to be a lot harder to implement and harder to scale, which is acquiring loans, originating loans, finding businesses at the right point in their time in their development where they're they're interested in in a business loan, um, and that's really I think why they've been successful. And and with with something as complex as finding businesses that that have loans and other people who are building marketplaces where onboarding that kind of customer is is actually quite difficult. What what are you seeing is an, uh, an attractive type of um, sales cycle or acquis- customer acquisition cycle. I don't, how long was it for them to get a business? Was it like in terms of days, hours, weeks, uh, in terms of the diligence required, in terms of the, the process? And what what is attractive for you? Businesses that have very small, or can it be long where like maybe the marketplace is valuable, but it could take you know three weeks of paperwork back and forth? The the you know the the. Um benchmark that they have to beat is banks, which is, uh, you know, that's a, that's a happy starting point for them because it's a, it's a very unhappy experience for, for customers. You know, they go into a branch and they sit down with a, a, a manager and um, they tell them about their business and more often than not they feel like the person doesn't understand their business or is not even interested in their business. Yeah. And, um, and, then they, and then they have to give them all kinds of personal data and then they get turned down. Um, it's a, just a really, really um, bad experience. And if it if it does, you know, end up in a loan, it, it takes it takes months. Yeah. Um, uh, so all they had case, to do was beat the worst next best option. Well, but they're not satisfied with just being yeah. slightly better than that. You know, the the um, the other extreme is um, the the marketplaces that lend money to individuals and give you an instant answer, yeah. right? Um, they can't quite do an instant answer, but they want to yeah. be much closer to that end. So it's um, it's hours and days rather than weeks and months. Yeah. Um, but most importantly, it needs to be a streamlined process. It needs to be uh, it needs to be easy. Um, it it uh, and it needs to be pleasant. Yeah. And and so that's what they're uh, and that's what they're that's what they're building. Cool. Well, um, I know that. Um, we could probably go on for hours with a lot of the, of the stories that you have with a lot of the great companies, and I'm sure you'll have people reaching out to you to share their stories. Um, but we always like to wrap up with, with a couple of things. One of them is, do you have any book recommendations for founders out there that uh, w- would like to just pick up some of the skills that maybe sometimes um, uh, are best represented in, in, in tomes? You know, I don't read a lot of um, I don't read a lot of business books. Yeah. Uh, I, uh, I I sort of feel like a lot of those books. Um, if you read the the back cover and the first chapter, you probably get eighty percent yeah, of it. Yeah, most of it. I, I mean, I'm sure that's not yeah. kind. Um, <laughs> but I, I just when I read, I, I like to read things kind of outside of outside of work. Outside of work. Um, well, on that on that note about outside of work, one of the things that I noticed uh, that you you're active with with human rights. Um, maybe you can maybe shamelessly plug. Uh, the work that you do there, uh, and, and maybe the, the the organization there. Yeah, thanks for thanks for uh, giving me an opportunity to do that. Um, the the organization I've been supporting now for over ten years is called Human Rights Watch, which is the biggest um, uh, or one of the biggest uh, human rights organizations in the world. Um, it was, uh, and what they do is they um, uh, have dedicated a dedicated team of highly trained researchers um, who cover uh, uh, many, many countries around the world um, and look at all kinds of different uh, human rights issues and they're experts in, you know, women's rights, um, 
children's rights, uh, etc. Um, they go on the scene and will investigate uh, human rights abuses. Um, they'll corroborate all that evidence. They'll put together a very, very uh, detailed report. Um, and then typically they'll go to policymakers or governments with their evidence and say, here's what, ha here's what really happened. Um, these are uh, the uh, recommendations or requirements that we're pushing for. Um, if you commit to doing these things within a you know, short period of time, we may not publish this report and we'll just work with you. Um, if not, we're going to publish this report. And the, you know, the amazing thing is that they've built over the years a very high level of credibility. Um, you know, if, you're, if, you, if you keep it in mind, you're going to hear the, the, the words Human Rights Watch um, on a daily basis on, on all of the major um, news channels. And they, uh, they take their, their reports almost at face value. They're that, they're that credible. Um, very often governments, you know, refuse to do something yeah. initially and they end up publishing lots of reports, but um, it's very, it's a very, it's been a very rewarding uh, association for me because I feel like um, there's a tendency in this world to kind of tune this stuff out because there's so much information. Yeah. Um, and you sometimes feel like, uh, you know, it's hard to really know what goes on unless you put in the time mm. uh, and therefore you reserve judgment because you don't have the time to really investigate um, what what really happened. Yeah. And you don't want to pass judgment without having the facts. Well, these guys do that for you. Yeah. And and that's really uh, that's useful. Yeah. That's really that's really satisfying for yeah. me to know that these guys are actually figuring out what happened uh, and making sure you know um, the bad guys don't have impunity. Yeah. No. Fair enough. Excellent. Well, thanks for your time, and until next time, guys. Bye.